You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 3rd of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Russian nationalists and lawmakers denounce military leaders after a deadly blast on a military barracks. International criticism grows of a visit by Israel's far-right security minister to a holy Muslim and Jewish site. And France bids adieu to the next day stamp. I'm Emma Nelson. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and my guests today, Nadine Batchelor-Hunt and Ivor Gaber, will discuss the day's big stories, including the missile strike that killed dozens of Russian soldiers and a German minister's social media gaffe. Plus we hear what's in store for the hospitality sector in 2023. So stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. I'm delighted to say I'm joined today by Nadine Batchelor-Hunt, broadcaster and political correspondent for Yahoo News UK. Hello, Nadine. Hello. Good to have you in the studio. Um, And Ivor Gaber, Professor of Political Journalism at the University of Sussex. Hello, Ivor. Emma, hi. How was everybody's Christmas? Because this, I think, is the first time we were kicking off the daily. Uh, So are we all in one piece? I felt festive for the first time in quite a while. I don't know if it's because it's the first proper Christmas we've had without any sort of restrictions or COVID-y kind of screaming in our face Mm. the way it was before. But I had a nice Christmas. A proper moment of feeling festive. When was that proper moment when you just thought, oh, we've done it, we're there? Uh, Christmas Eve, I think. I was like, you know what? I felt... Christmas Eve for the first time in ages. So. How lovely. Yeah. How about you, Ivan? Well, I had a lovely Christmas because we celebrated it with our first granddaughter, Aww. Marnie, who is a star, who is now, she's now, I have to say, 10 months, but she is a genius. I mean, it's just phenomenal. <laughs> but just very briefly, the nice thing, my, my, my wife, getting very personally, has got a bit of a persistent cough. And so when she walks into the room, Marnie greets her with a... <laughs> <laughs> well done, Marnie. The genius baby. How lovely. Well, let's turn from festive things to a sharp focus on what 2023 has given us in the last couple of days. Let's head to Russia, a country that doesn't often like to talk about the losses it's incurred during its invasion of Ukraine. But it's admitted that 63 soldiers were killed in an airstrike on a barracks in the occupied region of Donetsk. Staying silent probably wasn't an option. Such was the scale of the strike. Well, earlier today on the briefing, Marcus Hippie heard from the Russia analyst Stephen Diel, who he asked what we know for sure about what happened in the strike. We know for sure that um, this building, which was a school in the town of Makiivka, um, has been completely destroyed. Um, it's quite a large building and it's been raised to the ground by this attack. So that's one definite point. Um, of course, the, the, figure we, the figure we don't know is exactly how many Russian servicemen died. Now, if Moscow is admitting to 63, you can be sure of one thing, and that is that it's a lot higher than that. Um, they're feeling they have to put out some sort of message because um, even though the Kremlin is very good at keeping a lid on information, it's very strong censorship of of anything they don't like. Nevertheless, of course, there are going to be families um, back in the Saratov region of Russia where apparently these soldiers came from uh, who will know very soon that their sons aren't coming home, that they're dead. Um, so they've had to admit that this was a larger attack than than many. Um, it's the biggest number that Russia has admitted to in one go. 
So it's bound to be more than 63. Whether it's as high as 400 dead as the Ukrainians are claiming, um, we don't know. But we know for sure, coming back to your original point, that the building was wiped out and therefore anyone in that building wouldn't have stood a chance. That was the Russia analyst Stephen Diel uh, talking to us a little bit earlier today on Monocle 24. Nadine, if I can begin with you, just let's reference what Stephen Diel just said. The Russians feel that they had to put out a message. This really does break with their usual communications, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think it's just another example of how the war is going extremely badly for Russia. I don't think anyone this time, if you were to talk about this time last year when concern was growing that Russia was going to invade Ukraine, anyone would have thought that Ukraine would be making this sort of progress. And this... Um, this admission of, of these deaths by Russia, I think, shows that there must be some discontent there. People must start must, must be starting to question, you know, what, what what we know they are. You know, what is the point of this war? Why? I think the, the piece um, that I was reading about this earlier said, you know, there are people asking questions as to why the soldiers were put next to weapons storage, when obviously that will always be a target for a, you know, for the country that you're at war with. So there is this discontent. And I think it's interesting how, you know, the, there's blame being pointed more at Russia rather than you know the, the the Ukraine that would have that would have um, made that missile strike. So yeah, it's another example I think of Russia's increasingly weak position um, going into you know 2023. And either an internally weak position, as Nadine has just mentioned, the fact that you know people and Stephen mentioned there will be sons who will not be coming home now. And it is reportedly, although none of this is being um, uh, verified for very obvious reasons, that the the Ukrainians are claiming a much higher death toll than the Russians are. They're saying hundreds died here. And it's being reported that these were recent conscripts rather than those who were, who chose to fight. These were that first wave who a few weeks ago, Putin said, OK, you know, he, here you go. Um, it suddenly becomes Russia's internal war, doesn't it? Yeah, well, there's the old but true cliche that truth is the first casualty in war. And we don't know the actual numbers. And certainly the flow of truthful information into Russia has been, how should we say, rather slow. But I have to say, if this sort of incident continues, then it is going to seep into Russian consciousness, despite the attempt, the very successful attempts of the Kremlin to manage the news, that you cannot deny when bodies are coming back in body bags, word will spread, rumours will spread. And it's interesting to speculate how long it would take to really eat into Russia's will to continue this. I mean, the big problem that Putin faces is finding a way out. Um, and will the West and Ukraine give him a way out? Can he find some sort of exit strategy, if only a ceasefire? Because at this stage, Zelensky has said, we won't even discuss a ceasefire until Russian troops get out. So it's very difficult without a complete collapse of morale in Russia to see where we go from here. And we have this um, the growing number of voices. We have reports that from within Russia, Nadine, there are nationalists and some politicians have not demanded punishment for Vladimir Putin and pushing against Putin himself, but have said that punishment must be meted out to the commanders who ignored the dangers. I mean, you mentioned the idea of them being placed next to munitions. But the fact remains is that it is a tactical problem rather than a strategic one that, the, that those who are trying to push back are using. 
Yeah, and the tactical issues that the Russian army are having really aren't new. I mean, if you look back to this summer, um, there were issues about generals being sent too far forward because there was confusion among troops on the front line. A lot of Russian soldiers were sent into Ukraine being told, oh, you're going to be welcomed with open arms and you're, you're, you know, you're liberating these Ukrainian neighbours from um, Nazis, etc. And then obviously a lot of these soldiers, who many of which were un- unprepared, arrived and saw that wasn't the case. And then Russian uh, generals had to be brought forward to kind of coordinate these men and then they ended up getting killed and some of them were quite senior. So again, this is another example of strategic failures by the Russian military. Um, Whether or not, you know, the the full story gets back to Putin, I imagine the spin and what he's told is very different to what's on the ground. But I think this is yet another example of how poorly prepared um, and how poor the organisation is of the Russian army to be making, you know, basic mistakes. One would expect if you know these weapons munitions are a target, unless you're willing to sacrifice your men which makes no sense why would you why would you put them next door to it and one of the so so i was going to say you said makes no sense but there has been a suggestion that how should we put it the professional military class in russia doesn't care a great deal about conscripts particularly those from the non-russian regions and i think samara would be regarded as outside mainstream russia and so there is a certain sort of contempt for the ordinary bloke in the field which perhaps is symbolised by sticking them in a, a, a flimsy building alongside their arms. I mean, we might be making too much of it, but it does all seem of a piece. We have a moment, though. We, I mean, it, we, we are on a turning point of a year, and, I, and obviously I think this time last year, a lot of us would not have expected the Russian invasion to have happened, nor would they have expected the Ukraine to withstand the invasion to such a degree. The momentum at this very date seems very much in Ukraine's hands. We have Volodymyr Zelensky saying that his army has shot down more than 80 drones in the last three days. Everybody is looking now and is behind the West at least is willing Ukraine to continue. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting is, um, you know, the, the issues surrounding energy supply uh, across Europe, I don't think have been as much of an issue as Putin would have hoped for. We haven't had blackouts. A lot of governments have rallied around, admittedly, at a cost to their economies. But, you know, a lot of countries have rallied around and supported ha- local households, as we've had here, with rising energy bills. So I think that was really critical for Putin to try and kneecap Europe with these energy supplies during the winter. Obviously, you know, there's still some winter months left, but we're, we're kind of heading out. We'll be heading out of the colder weather going into March and April. So, yeah, it is looking pretty bleak. And, you know, as you said, many people wouldn't have expected Ukraine to have held out. And I also think not many people would have anticipated NATO and other states around the world would have been so unified, you know, after Trump threatening to leave NATO, after, you know, hostilities between the UK and EU and all of that kind of stuff. I don't think we'd have expected to see this kind of alliance we have. Yeah, there is a, a troubling alliance on the other side, if you like. Um, President Xi is due in Moscow, I'm not sure when, I think it's this week. Um, so far, he's sat on his hands. Um, Russia has relied on Iran for its supply of armaments, which is another uncomfortable alliance. So just as the West, if you like, has held solid, I am concerned about the alternative alliance being built, which most of us will agree doesn't have, let's how should we put it, democracy at its heart. So we could be heading, we are in a new Cold War and it's a very uncomfortable one.
Let's move on to another area of, of sort of extreme sensitivity, which has found himself in the spot, found itself in the spotlight in the last forty-eight hours in Israel, to a site considered by both Jews and Muslims as one of the holiest of all. It is known to Jews as the Temple Mount, site of two biblical temples, and to Muslims as Haram al Sharif, the site of Muhammad's ascent to heaven. Well, the entire compound is considered to be the Al Aqsa Mosque by Muslims. But yesterday's visit to the spot by Israel's Minister of National Security, the ultranationalist Itamar Ben-Gvir has provoked fury from the militant group Hamas, from the Palestinian leadership and condemnations from the wider world. Um, Ivory, if I can begin with you, tell us a little bit more about Itamar Ben-Gvir. Well, he is a controversial figure, to say the least. Jewish power, the organisation he leads... Um, most people, possibly include themselves, would describe it as racist. Um, they, Israel has claims for to be a democracy because up until this government, um, Jewish Israelis and Arab Israelis, not Palestinians living in the occupied territories, but those living in what was called the Green Line, had in theory equal rights. Jewish power is committed to end that situation and literally to make um, it, it, Israel's Arab population second-class citizens in law as well as in fact. It was illegal. The, he was banned from, from holding ministerial office because he was a convicted criminal for various offences, um, political offences to be uh, incitement and harassment as opposed to other sorts. Um, but nonetheless, Netanyahu desperately needed his votes and the votes of the ultra-religious party to form a coalition after the last Israeli election. And um, he has agreed not only to include them in the coalition, but to give him, Gavir, this crucial post as security minister, where he has the ability to control not just what happens in Israel proper, but also what happens in the occupied territories, where he is extending Israeli troops' right to intervene in what until now have been areas under the Palestinian Authority. So he is a dangerous character. And his first act as... The government, led by um, Benjamin Netanyahu, was sworn in, sworn in five days ago. Um, Nadine was to go to this incredibly important place. It cannot be underestimated how important this place is. If you're Jewish, I think it is the holiest site. Yeah, I'm Jewish, Jewish, and it is it is the the holiest. Yeah. So to have him turning up, what sort of tone is this setting? Well. It's it's actually quite interesting because it has also received condemnation from um, some senior religious leaders because for some of them it's too holy for Jews to go up there. There are some religious leaders in Israel that say Jewish people should not go up to Temple Mount and I think as a result of that there has been um, condemnation. But it, it does feel... It deliberately inflammatory. I mean, there are there are some Jews who do feel it's unfair that Jews can't go up there and pray, but there is also a respect of the status quo, the, the politicised nature of the spot, the fact that um, it is it, it to, to to interfere with it can cause violence, and it just does feel like this this individual just hasn't taken this seriously and the repercussions of that and it is concerning given how early we are into this new coalition um, and Netanyahu's response to this is really important because it will kind of I, I think at least show what his what what you know what his premiership moving forward is going to look like and what he's willing to tolerate this place has got form in terms of being used as a political football in, in highly sensitive arguments. If we look back at 2000, we look at Ariel Sharon, I think, who's the leader of the opposition in Israel. Um, he went there with hundreds of police officers in riot gear and it was then thought to be the, the, the thing that triggered the second Palestinian intifada. Oh, 
it, it, it certainly did. Um, slight difference, actually, because... Um, Following that, there was the status quo, as Nadine said, is that Jews are allowed to visit, but they're not allowed to pray. Um, and Netanyahu has committed himself, and actually has today committed himself, that that status quo will remain. And I don't think I don't think Gavir was unaware of that. I think this is a deliberate act of him saying to Netanyahu, "You can say what you like, but I've got my beliefs, my forces. You need me, and I'm going to do it my way." I think it's a quite a dangerous moment, and it's in, it could be seen as a challenge to Netanyahu's uh, authority because although he is a right winger. He's quite a pragmatist as well. He's been very bellicose, but he's never steered Israel into a war yet, a full-scale war. And so I think that this is an interesting period, moment for Netanyahu, who is a very skillful politician, but he's brought into, I'm trying to think of the analogy, you know, supping with a short spoon or whatever. He's brought into his camp two rather dangerous animals. Nadine, what would you say to that, the fact that Gavir is, is sort of send, you know, sending out a salvo within moments of Netanyahu coming into into power at a time when, what, I think it was his his sixth go as Prime Minister. Well, I think it shows how unstable, yet again, another coalition has become in Israel. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we've got... <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised that would be reaching we, a record, wouldn't it? Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there's another election imminently if this sort of stuff um, carries on. But Gaviria is clearly appealing to the kind of ultra-religious nationalists. That there are people that are extremely far-right in Israel that believe that a second, te- well, a third temple should be built on Temple Mount and that Al-Aqsa should be demolished. And it does. it is concerning to see a minister go up there like this. But I... I think it's hard to to arguably read too much into it because this is this is one man and I wouldn't be surprised if this coalition collapses eventually. Well, again. You, you say that because the Israeli foreign minister Eli Cohen attacked the Palestinian leadership um, on Monday, saying that they should tra- stand trial at the Hague for war crimes. I mean, we're off we go again. This is this is this is clearly. I mean, I think you might have a very good point here, um, Ivor, that there is this, not necessarily a pincer movement, but there is a, a, a very strong movement by by the far right in the, in the Israeli government to try and set some set some barriers and some boundaries. Is, Israeli politics is um, in a mess and has been for a long time. It's got a very unstable system of electoral um, of proportional representation. They say that the definition of democracy in Israel is one man, one party. They have a very, very low threshold hold and as a result it means virtually every party gets in there and that gives them an inordinate amount of power and Israeli governments left and right have been in hock to the far right particularly to the religious right. Well another example is um, the the law of return and how there's a there's an attempt to remove um, the right of reformed Jews or conservative Jews, Mazorti Jews um, to immigrate to Israel like orthodox Jews can so this this extends also beyond you know the, the Palestinian uh, relations with Palestine but also to other Jews, you know the the, the the concessions being made. You know, I'm a Mazorti Jew. I would become. I already can't get married in Israel because I'm not Orthodox, and I could have my right of the right of return removed because these Orthodox figures who are in coalition with with Netanyahu are pushing for this. So the far right isn't just you know infiltrating foreign policy and policy with Palestine, but it's also infiltrating religious relations within the Jewish community. It's interesting also that it's not just the Jewish community, but the wider world, which is watching what Israel is doing incredibly closely. I mean, you think it was not so long ago that Anthony. Blinken, I think it was only about a month ago, the US Secretary of State, said that it would, the US would unequivocally oppose any acts that undermines the prospects of a two-state solution to the conflict, issuing warnings about this site, about any attempt by the Israeli government to change
change the arrangement that stands at the moment. This is there are voices from outside Israel who are saying you do not mess with this. Well, the problem that America always has is it wants to condemn Israel to distance itself, but it no. But above all, there are two factors that it has to take into account. One is strategic; that Israel is a very, very important strategic ally of the United States. Perhaps I wouldn't say less so, but Saudi Saudi Arabia is also such. But Iran is a common enemy. But of course, the second thing is the fact that the, in America, the Jew, Jews. I, I'm, I'm trying to avoid generalizing here. The Jewish lobby is quite important, um, very important, um, perhaps less the, less important than it used to be, but still a factor that most American politicians have to take into account, particularly because um, on the right, the um, evangelical Christians have now adopted the notion of Israel being the promised land, etc., etc., and so they are acting as a counterweight on the right, and the Democrats have always had a strong Jewish lobby within them. And it's a funny situation as well in terms of Israel's position in the last few years, um, often with the help of Donald Trump, it... it, it Israel managed to sort of reforge connections with the likes of the UAE, with Bahrain, with Morocco. Um, it's you know it's maintaining peace treaties with Egypt and Jordan. So it has sort of brought the the wider Arab world closer to it in the last couple of years. So what does it say now when you have the security minister? effectively trampling over an awful lot of hard work. Well, this is the thing. This is the consequence that Netanyahu is going to have by affiliating or associating with the far right because they are inherently anti-Arab and anti-Muslim and they won't like the fact that Israel has closer ties with the Arab world. That's not something that they would see to be celebrated. But I think Netanyahu will probably be most concerned about the warnings from the US about this behaviour because Israel relies so much on America for money um, and Netanyahu is really cognizant of the fact that he needs America's support to for Israel to function and survive within you know the, the, among the hostile countries around it so Netanyahu understands the, the importance of the relationship with the US so I think you know moving forward uh, Netanyahu's response and also the way in which this coalition is going to function in part will be defined by its relationship with the US I think You're listening to the Monocle Daily with me Emma Nelson the time here in London is 18.21 and I'm delighted to say that surrounding me on the at, at the table is Nadine Bachelor-Hunt, broadcast from political correspondent for the Yahoo News UK, and Ivor Gaber, Professor of Political Journalism at the University of Sussex. And it is to politics that we turn next, because you are never alone with a microphone. The years-old adage which has had so many times caught public figures off guard because they're still being plugged in. Well, nowadays the risks are much higher thanks to the fact that anyone in possession of a smartphone is a journalist and social media is now the accepted mainstream forum for communication. So in this context, why would Germany's foreign minister post a video online saying the war in Ukraine brought her, and I quote, fascinating experiences in 2022, meetings with wonderful people for this, I want to express my heartfelt thanks. Mm. Do you think um, Christina Lambrecht was able to read the room, Nadine? Um, no. And I was, as we, as I said before, we came on air for for British people when it comes to faux pas by politicians. This feels quite low down the list now when it comes to something <laughs> we'd be outraged by. But um, no, I do think it's an example of uh, politicians making really tone-deaf comments. I mean, it reminds me a bit of the thick of it that used to be on the BBC and you look back and you're like, you you watch that and you're like, classic faux pas. So it is... Seems uh, pretty mild now, actually. Really, really, really for us. Language which was never mild. <laughs> no, quite fruity. 
Um, I, I, I sort of get your point on this one, but you know, when you have, when I when I saw it, I <clears throat> I sort of got that feeling. You know, when people ex- want to express gratitude and thanks for absolutely everything, in in that way. I don't know why we've all started to do it. Even I've started to say I'm very grateful this morning for absolutely everything that I have. It's a lovely way to go, but maybe not when it comes to Ukraine. No, indeed. I think a few <laughs> week, I think a few years ago, people were saying, you know, the upside of COVID was dot dot dot, and yet we, you know, failing to notice the millions of people who lost their lives. Well, I'm reminded of um, a film going back even further than a pick of it called The Life of Brian, which was done by British Comedy Series of Monty Python, and it is very blasphemous. It was banned as blasphemous, but the end scene is a shot of Christ on the crucifix um, mumbling something, and when the one of the Roman legionnaires goes closer, he's mumbling, always look on the bright side of life, boom. And I think, as tasteless as that is, this German politician, the Brecht, was trying to do the same, trying to be upbeat, trying to be positive, um, and some good is coming out of the war in Ukraine, because I'm meeting interesting people. Yeah, let's try and put this in a little wider context, Nadine. Is what she has said a sackable offence? Because I think a few years ago, possibly saying that publicly would have got you seeing the door but times have changed i mean the the brass neck of the brass neck of westminster i mean, that's the thing. people I have think said it, anything i think it depends on what country you're in here definitely not i mean that's <laughs> minor i mean here it wouldn't even make the news so <laughs> i think um i think yeah i think it depends on the the standard of the, uh, the not not the standard but the the political landscape of the time i personally don't think it's the resignation offense i think it's something stupid and you know and i, I think it's insensitive but you know i, I don't think it's a resignation offense but definitely here i'd be very surprised if a politician resigned over a comment like as, that. A, as a political journalist would you expect there be to sort of be some repercussions later down the line i'll ask you both this question both being you know polit- political experts but the fact that she may be passed i mean she's foreign minister but she may be passed up for a promotion she may have like lost her chance of chancellorship one day um, I think should I think an apology will probably mm. go a long way, but again, I, I don't know how far out that comment would be. I mean, you know, Tom Tegenhart, I spoke to him about this, and he stood by the comments, but he once said in Parliament that we should deport um, all Russian citizens as a response to Putin's invasion of Ukraine, or words to that effect. Um, and he still ran for Tory leader, so you know, um, it depends on what the, the kind of the spectrum of, of uh, that we're talking about when it comes to political faux pas. And Ivor, when you're teaching your journalism students in, at the University of Sussex. I mean, how much are they now sort of dealing with this slightly, this utterly uncontrollable world, or rather a world of two halves, when it comes to um, Frau Lambrecht coming out with that? Clearly not having run the press office before she decided to whack that up on YouTube or wherever it was on social media. But at the same time, you have political journalists, sorry, political spokespeople and the press office trying to sort of sit on absolutely everything that comes out, This, you know, dating back to, to the years of Tony Blair and, and, and Alistair Campbell. Well, I think social media has become a, a nightmare for press officers. In the <laughs> old days, you know, you could control, you know, there was the morning programmes, the lunchtime programmes, the evening programmes, then you go home and forget it. But now... Um, you're not just worrying about what's on Twitter or, or, or Instagram or, or, or whatever, but you're worrying about what your how your minister or you, is reading it. And, oh, my God, are they going to respond? And how can I control them and how can I reach them? Although, I have to say, I did some research on t- politicians' use of Twitter a, f- a few years ago in a run-up to election. I mean, what was interesting was actually 
um, how many press officers don't allow their minister to tweet. I know, they, I know a few press, uh, staffers that are just like, yeah, I control the Twitter. Yeah. Well, yeah. This, is, this, is, <laughs> this is super exciting, fun times for a political journalist, knowing that actually something could just pop up out of nowhere and off we go. Yeah, I've been, I've been in a bar where um, a press officer's seen something that their MPs tweeted and they've been like, oh, God, I need to find them now. Why have they done that? So there's definitely that relationship. Where I've heard them just, say they've done that without my permission. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, um, and also, you know, the most senior politicians, they won't rarely. I mean, it depends if you like Nadine Doris, who would just tweet whatever. But I think particularly kind of cabinet ministers that are in Rishi's government will probably have someone else managing their account. To turn that completely on its head, I had a conversation with a senior front bencher a year ago and she, oh, I've narrowed it down by 50%, she told me that she never responds to constituents' complaints that come by email because she says, because if, re- if, really, if it's a really serious matter, they'll be bothered to write me a letter and post it to me because anybody can dash off an email, so I ignore it. Well, I mean, I wonder whether actually it's got, if you actually want something done, you tweet. You don't even bother with an email because yeah. they cannot be read. So I, want, I mean, Twitter has now become that, instant, that great forum where, you know, if you want something done, you have to tell the whole world that your gas boiler isn't working. Well, you have to tell the whole world 20 times. <laughs> One tweet is not enough. I think that's why there's been so much concern as well about Elon Musk's chaotic bizarre takeover of Twitter because it is such an important part for our democracies for better or for worse it allows MPs and politicians to communicate directly without you know things being put up through different channels but um, it, there is there are issues with it as you say a constituent that manages to get something vi- go viral shouldn't have more attention than another one just because they sent an email and the other one had a viral tweet so yeah there are issues there I think when it comes to how democracy we functions. have international um Changes though, because if you look at what's happening here, we're we're all used to everybody washing their laundry in in public and and Frau Lambrecht p- popping that video up. But let's go to Japan. Japan's imperial family is just getting its own public relations office, which I think is adorable. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure there are people in the palace who agree. I mean, the contrast between that and the Meghan and Harry show <laughs> is pretty amazing. Um, the palaces, I've been on a couple of royal tours, I, as a journalist, not as a, <laughs> a dignitary, and the palace press offices are just amazing for the precision of what they do. For example, um, I, was with a, I, was, I was with a camera crew and they said, right, the car will pull up, it will take Her Majesty seven seconds from the car mm. stopping to the door opening, and the door opens to the right to the left and so we've arranged for places 72 degrees into the etc and I just thought extraordinary of course that was before the days when they had to worry about what was popping up on social media and certainly not worrying about what was on Netflix or any forthcoming That was before books. Boris Johnson decided that if you were being told as a journalist that he was going to arrive from left to right on his bicycle he would arrive 10 minutes late from right to left. <laughs> That's how he did it. Um, let's move on. You were talking about writing letters a moment ago, Ivor. Well, let's, let's gently move towards this thing that's happened in France. It's bidden adieu to an integral part of its society, the Timbre Rouge. Long guaranteed next day delivery with La Poste has stopped. Its replacement is a new digital e-letter, Rouge. Hmm. Anyone wanting to send a simple letter will now be invited to write directly on La Poste's website. And then for €1.49, someone will print off that document and deliver it to their recipient. Gorgeous stuff. 
So is romantic. it or isn't it? So romantic. So romantic. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because people have been mentioning the fact that this is an all-too-common story of increased running costs and the fact that fewer people are using the French Postal Service. But someone else has raised the fact that whatever happened to confidentiality, privacy and secrecy and the deliciousness of that being contained within, within an envelope? Well, that's the thing. And I think postage particularly as well, if you're an informant of something or you're particularly, I was a journalist, some people will post things and they don't want someone printing it out in some random post office, reading it, potentially reading it, packaging it up for you and sending it. Um, because as you say, you completely lose your privacy. And in an era of, um, you know, ma- like mass surveillance, you know, you've got cameras everywhere, you know, you could have your emails, um, you could have someone hack your emails, all of this sort of stuff. Letters in many ways and ri- the written word is one of the last vestiges of privacy that we have. So the idea that, you know, oh, now you have to send it to a post office where some random person can print it out and read it and then post it. It's just bizarre. The French do have an answer to this one, which apparently La Poste requires its staff to take an oath of privacy. Oh, well, that's so that's So that's it. all right then, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? That solves it. We can, we can trust those personal workers. But it is slightly... Um, Sad that um, the letter, the the death, almost the death of the letter. Um, I was pondering historians, for example, will have a real difficult job constructing. Re- people's lives based on their social media feeds because they don't give you the depth or the texture that you got when they wrote long letters, not just to their lovers or whatever, but also to colleagues. I mean, the richness that that gave you um, is something that future historians, current historians, are going to lack. We shall see. What do you miss that's electronic now that used to be printed? One thing that I deeply, deeply mourn the loss of is the boarding pass that you used to be able to use it well you used to be it, it, A you have that wonderful stack of things which said you went here you went there and you sat at that seat and you are suddenly transported to that, that I spot think I'm the showing plane. my age a little bit because um, most <laughs> what's, a, what's a boarding <laughs> pass no I've had a board, I, I, I do use boarding passes mostly now <laughs> um, if, if, if the, the app isn't working I'll get a boarding pass I think as a kid I remember having a few boarding passes but mm. for me it was always I remember I had a pen pal at school but mostly for me it was very much always digital like texting wow. even like the old Nokia and stuff so okay. yeah. you've now yeah. really massively showed me up about the fact that I, I still <laughs> insist on a boarding pass being printed out how about you Ivor? Well, I have some years for it, but there used to be these things called telegrams. <laughs> Little man or boy on a bicycle, and ring on your bell, and when you were 100, you got one from the queen, mm-hmm. the king, whatever, um, and now you probably get an email. But there was something about letters, which I suppose you re The moment... Christmas cards does give you... Do you remember Christmas cards? Yes, yes, yes. You open an envelope <laughs> and you get cards. a message. Birthday cards. But I do miss... Um, the post in the sense of what's in the post today because emails don't have that quality there's something about opening the letter in anticipation I will yeah. say one thing about written it's diaries I don't think you could replace writing a diary with a, with a computer I mean I've tried and it just doesn't feel the same there's something cathartic about writing do you write letters. a diary? Uh, well I remember to right. uh, it's quite I think that's I would, I would struggle to have the same attachment and meaning to a diary if it was digital I think writing diaries I think maybe will something that survives you've given me hope 
Nadine Bachelor Hunt, broadcaster and political correspondent for Yahoo News and UK, and Ivor Gaber, professional of political journalism at the University of Sussex. Thank you so much for coming in and talking about writing, because finally we turn to hospitality. With the ushering in of a new year, many restaurateurs, owners and entrepreneurs are looking at the biggest trends for the sector to try to assess what 2023 might look like. Well, one such person is Tyvian Vigras, the co-founder of The Long Lane. It's a cocktail bar and eatery based in Smithfields here in London, launched by three industry veterans. Combined, they bring more than 60 years of experience, so they know a thing or two about the ebb and flow of hospitality. Earlier, Tyvian stopped by our studio to talk to Monocle's Tom Edwards about the future of the sector. It's such a vibrant scene in London that there's always quirks and themed establishments and that will continue. Going back to basics and or classics and doing things simply well, I think, is just a really good formula. So if you're able to do that and people recognise it, then yes, perhaps the public are more attuned to it nowadays. And so the kind of customers that we have, yes, that would demonstrate that people are, are really up for that kind of you know, level of service and attention to detail, which, sadly, you do not get in every single place in this vibrant city that we live in. So it's amazing how varied the hospitality scene is, but hospitality, the word, is pretty straightforward. Well, I would say people who are good at it yeah. make it sound and seem straightforward, but there's a lot of people who make a right hash of it, so right. it's not so easy. You're absolutely right. But then again, you know, entrepreneurs, they're risk takers, aren't they? And they're trying to do things that um, perhaps you and I don't necessarily you know, want to tap into. But, mm. you know, some of these big chains, they're just phenomenal. They're juggernauts and they continue to expand and um, open more sites. So there's obviously that side. And then there's us little independents who um, are well supported by the community. And, um, and we have some great regulars already in the long lane, which is really exciting to see. So it's already growing, which is great. That is great. And I think there is something to be said for the degree of enthusiasm people have for smaller operators. Mm. It's, they may love the chains, they're very reliable, they can find them anywhere, but it's never quite the same. Let I me agree. just go back to this point you made, actually, about classics, doing things simply but mm. well. And you and your co-founders, Jack and Marco, also... I won't be specific. A number of decades of collective experience <laughs> between you. Thank you. Um, but working in, I think, some absolute exemplars of exactly this thing. Mm. Palomar, Hawksmoor. These are names our listeners will know, particularly those in the UK, but indeed lots from around the world. And they'll associate them with classics done the right way. Is that yes. something that actually brought you guys together, do you think? As you alluded to, we have a long and uh, checkered history, the three of us. And that's what's kind of great. We managed to bring in the three styles and our three personalities, and it works really well. And the three of us, we will all have very similar tastes. We know what we like, and we kind of try to ape that within the venues. Talk to me then about this idea, you know, in terms of the, the offering. How sensitive are you to the big prevailing trends, kind of these societal changes? You know, mm. London is a very different animal mm. coming out of the pandemic than it was going in, but some things are the same. What's the sort of process, or is it actually a little bit more organic and your three of you kind of riff on it and mm. decide together and figure it out? What's the kind of process like when you're doing things like setting the cocktail agenda or the small plates, when you're talking about what that's going to look like, feel like? What's the mechanics of the process? That's one of the really fun, exciting parts of what we do. With the Long Lane, for example, you can go into Smithfield and um, just go and soak up what it has to offer in terms of bars and restaurants. 
tough job. Um, <laughs> so someone's got to do it, as they always say. Thank you. So places like St. John, um, recently opened bar Bruto, also sort of trailblazing restaurateur behind it. So curating cocktails, doing things that we know. We look back and see what's worked, for example. We definitely check on the competition and what else is in the area. And rather than kind of mirror what they're doing, it would be a I guess a melding of influences and at the Long Lane we do a particular cocktail called Black Velvet, really old school cocktail. I don't know if you know it, it's a mixture of champagne and then London Porter or Guinness on top. And there's a restaurant just around the corner from us called Sweetings and it's uh, one of the oldest restaurants within the square mile. And they do it, they are the best precursors to this cocktail which we now have at the Long Lane. And so... um, Having gone for a business lunch there, we we kind of <laughs> listeners. He did he did air, he did air quotes. I feel you need to know. Sorry, that. but yeah, we had a boozy lunch, and one of the drinks that they served there was the black velvet. And so, in a kind of an homage to those guys, we're doing it at the Long Lane. We're doing it with our little take on it is a frozen a tankard. So it's a pewter tankard, and you'll have a cremant rather than a champagne. Still, it's French. It's sparkling wine but uh, they can't call it champagne. And then we use a London porter by a brewer called Ansbach and Hobday, which are a local London-based brewer from South London, and they're doing a nitro stout, and it's just fantastic. And so, as I mentioned before, we like to go out and see what else is out there. We've had so many years of doing this that you really... Before opening the business, you're kind of putting away these, you know, maybe recipes that you've had. It doesn't have to be in London. It could have been on travels far away. But you're always putting things in that kind of when I have my own place box. And we're lucky enough to have our own place now, too. And that's kind of where it all kind of gels from. And um, you have to have your ear to the ground and see what people like. Mm. Take customer feedback. Don't get too upset when someone says they don't like something. You can't please everyone, but still, everyone's got a valid opinion. It's an ongoing process for sure. And in terms of trends, you asked, the biggest trend that we saw in terms of change coming out of COVID was the way people were booking. There was a huge jump in online reservations, which came straight after COVID. People wanting to know that they had a reservation and they a place to go. That road's kind of... Yeah, it tailed away a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think people, in terms of credit crunch, stuff going on in the world, it's definitely reduced the amount of bookings out there from our perspective for the two bars. We've seen a a slight decrease in that. So kind of worrying times, but you have to kind of roll with the punches. And that was Tyvian Vigras there speaking to Tom Edwards. And that's all we have time for today's edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thanks to my panellists today, Nadine Batchelor-Hunt and Ivor Gaber. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean, with editing assistance from Carlotta Ribello. I'm Emma Nelson here in London. The Monocle Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. So goodbye and thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>